This is a HeadGum Podcast. Good One is sponsored by The Other Two, premiering Thursday at 10.30, 9.30 Central after the season premiere of Broad City on Comedy Central. Hello, I am Vulture Senior Editor Jesse David Fox, and welcome to Good One, the podcast about jokes. And do we have a joke this week? Our guest is Sebastian Maniscalco, a stand-up that feels under the radar despite the fact that he's huge. He's like a giant, big comedian. And the joke we talk about is Doorbell, easily one of the most well-known bits of the past decade by, like, anyone. With Sebastian's newest special, Stay Hungry, coming out on Netflix, we discussed the bit that put him on the map, and that he was doing once again in his act for the first time since he filmed it for his 2012 special, What's Wrong With People. See, when we sat down to talk, Sebastian was getting ready for a weekend of shows at Madison Square Garden. I told you he was huge. And he was planning on bringing out some of the classics to celebrate the occasion. I feel like I say this a lot, but I really suggest you watch this bit and not just listen to it. Sebastian's maybe the most physical comedian alive, with act outs so thoroughly ingrained into his writing. His movements are deliberate, specific, and so, so funny. It's worth watching the clip just to see how he pantomimes opening the door. It's just perfection. So, here is Sebastian Maniscalco and Doorbell. I was sitting in my house a couple weeks ago, just relaxing. My doorbell rang. This is weird. It's a different feeling when your doorbell rings today opposed to 20 years ago, right? 20 years ago, your doorbell rang. That was a happy moment in your house. It's called company. You'd be sitting there on a Thursday night watching TV. Your doorbell rang, the whole family shot off the couch. Oh my God! Put the lights on, somebody's here. We got people. The whole family went to the door. The kids were in socks, they slid up to the door. (laughs) Nobody looked to see who it was. You just opened up the door, you were like, oh my God, look at that. Look at who's here. And you'd ask him, what the hell are you doing here? And the person would be like, I was in the neighborhood. I thought I might stop by, see how the kids are doing. They're like, oh, come on in. We're gonna have some cake. Your mother had a little Entenmann's. Maybe some Sara Lee crumble cake. Just in case company came over. She made an announcement when she bought it. She's like, listen, nobody touched this cake. This is for company only. Those crap muffins, those are for you, people. You better hope to God somebody comes over so we can cut the cake. She put her cake in the middle of the table, proud of it. And she put it right in the middle. Cut yourself a slice. Want a cup of coffee? We're gonna do co- Want some Sanka? Yeah, that's old school. A lot of the young kids are looking at me like, what is that, an iPhone app? 
what the hell is Sanka? Your mother had a tin, brown and orange tin of Sanka, ready to go just in case the company, she put a big pot on the table, go ahead. Nobody had a cell phone back then. If your, if your, if your, if your house phone did ring, your father stood up and said, nobody get that phone. We got company. <laughs> and you lost track of time. Two hours went by. You were like, we got to get out of here. Said, That's okay. Next time we're going to come by you. Be like, yeah, my door's always open. <laughs> now your doorbell rings. <laughs> It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> right, your own mother's crawling across the kitchen floor. Get down my army crawl. Army crawl, get in the closet. Go get the sword in the living room. Somebody get the sword underneath the couch in the living room. There's a sword. All right, you have to turn and ask your family, you invite anybody over? You invite anybody over. There's always that person upstairs that didn't hear the bell. They come walking down. What the hell is going on? Get the hell down, somebody's outside. They're at the door. I think they saw movement. Oh God, I gotta open it. I got no cake, I got no sank, I got nothing. I got nothing for these people. You can't stop by anybody's house anymore. If you do, you have to call from the driveway. You're like, I'm here, can I approach? It's me and three other people. We're gonna walk up through this side. Is that your mother with a sword? Why did you have a sword? I am here with the comedian behind the joke you just heard, Sebastian Maniscalco. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So um, I want to talk about, even before a joke is written, about sort of how you sort of go about observing your life. You know, I was thinking about in your new special, you, you have a joke about being at the gym, and then your wife was like, She's like, why do you look at everybody? Just do you. Why do you look at the whole gym? I go, because that's, that's what makes me happy. I like to be bothered. Are you going through your life looking for material in that way? Like, are you sort of always on your, with your eyes out? And then sort of what is the feeling that you're looking for that you're like, oh, there's, there might be something here? So I generally go off the feeling I'm having while the quote-unquote act is is going on. For example, I'll be at an airport and I'll see my gate and there's a lot of people at the gate. I normally go down to two or three other gates where nobody is and I sit down. No matter how far I go, there's always somebody that sits right (laughs) next to me. Now, Mm -hmm. I feel, I don't know, like if you would feel or you would feel at all annoyed by that, but I, I actually get upset that this person decided to sit near me mm-hmm. when there's 68 other chairs available. Yeah. So those moments I go, oh, okay, 
I think there's a nugget here yeah. to explore. And uh, that's that's an addition to that that little chunk is an addition to the bit that's in the the new special with the treadmill, where the treadmill becomes like the airport where I have eight empty treadmills yeah. and a guy kind of run right next to me. So I get annoyed at those things. I don't know if anybody else does, yeah, but I feel when those moments are happening and how I'm feeling, I tend to retell the story. There's a lot of talking I do during the day to people. Mm -hmm. uh, not a lot of people, just specific people. I have a buddy back home in Chicago that we share stories. Um, he'll call me up and he goes, listen to this. And then he'll tell me a story. I go, yeah, you think that's me? Listen to this. Yeah. So we'll share stories back and forth, back and forth. My mom is a good barometer for um, what I do on stage. If I got my mom laughing at a particular story, it's not like I'm telling her the story so I could put it on stage. It's just like if you would call your buddy or your wife or whoever and say, babe, I just went to the Four Seasons Hotel and we set up a podcast in the middle of a banquet, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. I tend to flush out my stories with uh, my close friends and family, and then I present those stories on stage, and I record them, and then I listen back, and then I go back the next night and maybe adjust something that I thought, eh, maybe I'll leave that out, pop this in. So it's not a writing of the material. Yeah. It's more of a trial and error um, on stage, but the inception of the stuff happens with me just telling a story to a family and then, and then you're just building you're like oh they responded to there's something there then you keep on going till you you if you just basically keep on if you feel like you have an observation then you're like i think this is universal you'll figure that out by one person at a time then slowly a hundred people then now you'll be like twenty thousand people like yes we agree that that observation is yeah good. and sometimes i tell so many people the same story that I forget that I've told them the story. So yeah. with my buddy George will go, All right, you told me that already. So that's how many times I'm telling the same story over and over and over again. And I don't know if that's normal. I don't know if people call four or five different people and tell like, I get annoyed when I was out to dinner about, I don't know, six, seven years ago, my wife had a, we had a dinner uh, we invited some people out to a restaurant and the bill came and I went to go pick up the bill and the, the guy I know didn't want to pay just by his behavior, <laughs> but he was like, oh, oh, you sure? And I'm like, I was sure until that half-assed, uh, you know, yeah, like yeah. attempt. Yeah. I get my material out of life and uh, I don't sit in a room and with a blank piece of paper and go, uh, yeah, and it's not yeah. what I do. In an interview a few years back, you were talking about your material, and you're like, look, it's not groundbreaking stuff. You're being humble, but I think you're trying to say it's like ultimately it's simple everyday premises that allow you to really play on top of that. Do you feel like that is what you like about sort of like a more universal observation than trying to find something really clever to sort of hang it on? Yeah, I'm not about clever. I'm more like, I think you're right. I think that was the Mark Marin or Joe Rogan interview I did that I said that it's not groundbreaking. And, I, and that's a great way of kind of explaining that statement. Simple, 
everyday stuff. You don't got to look too far for material. It's always right in front of you. And uh, that's what I'm just reporting the news. Really. What, what do you like about it? Or what do you think it works for you? Works for me because I think it resonates with everybody. You don't have to be a specific... Um, you know, it, 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 you know, like some people talk about smoking pot, right? Now, if you don't smoke pot, you might not get the joke because you don't know what it's like to be on pot. I like to do jokes that everybody could relate to regardless of you're smoking pot, <laughs> drinking beer, or what have you. Everybody is living their day-to-day -day life, and the observations that I might make at Starbucks or Chipotle, I believe that a lot of people have been through and can relate to it. So let's talk about the doorbell joke. Where did that start? And then what is the process? You know, what was then the process? You're like, oh, this might be worth looking into. We, I remember where that came from. It was a, a, a at my kitchen table in Chicago when I was around 23 years old. My family was talking about, because the doorbell had just rang and it was a family member. And we were talking about the doorbell and the differences how it is today and how it was 20 years ago. And we were just talking as a family. Remember 20 years ago, you used to get yeah. excited, go to the, now everybody don't, you know, you, you, murder could be on the other side of the yeah. door. So then when I started doing stand-up comedy, I even forgot like that we had that conversation. I think my sister, somebody in my family had reminded me, you remember that time we were talking about the doorbell? And then I and I revisited it and then just kind of took what we were talking about at the table to the stage. And then the second prong is the act outs on that. Yeah. So, you know, you could tell a joke just like the doorbell joke and not do any of the the shh or the down, you know, like I, I, I tend to to tell people to get down, I get on one knee, I, I kind of paint a picture of, of what's going on. And that adds to what I'm saying. So I've noticed over time that if you not only exp uh, tell the joke, but actually act it out, that people really, really enjoy the physicality of it uh, and as well as the, the explanation of it. I, I want to talk about act outs because you there's no one doing it really like you. Like really is you are leading a charge of both the amount and sort of your style of doing it. So I really would like to focus on it because a little bit more. I heard in, or I think I read an interview you were saying that the first time you did an act out, you weren't like, oh, I'm going to start doing act outs. You had a joke about Ralph's dress for less and you imagined a customer and how they put back the clothing. What was it about doing that act out at that stage of your career that, where you're like, there's something here that you're like, this is a thing that I want to start doing more? I think it was the unexpectedness of the act out that really kind of got people laughing. So I've noticed upon looking at me, you don't think that I'm going to be physical or expressive on stage. I kind of have like a seriousness yeah. about me. What I notice is when I start acting kind of goofy and doing these goofy movements coming from a guy like myself, you would not expect to be a goofball doing these movements so when i look at the thing and 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 i and i chuck it across it's unexpected you don't think i'm gonna do it and it's such a big movement that it really kind of worked and i was like wow really really got a great great response i wonder where i could kind of sprinkle physical movement into the act 
but it not be so kind of sticky, you know, because if you, you run a, there's a fine line on like acting everything out. It's like, okay, what are you going to, how much stuff you're going to yeah. do? If I find if you sprinkle it in spots where, you know, it's not so frequent and it's like, oh, wow, we saw that, you know, saw that act out. You know, even like looking for stuff on the floor at Ross, you know, like just throwing stuff, bending down, whatnot. I'm just noticing in the audience that people are really gravitating towards it. So I made a conscious effort to not only tell the joke, but uh, sprinkle it with physicality, which I think people, I don't know, I, I don't know, maybe I'm not, you know, it, it's been done before, uh, physicality and comedy and expressiveness, uh, but I don't know if I've taken it to a different place. Or yeah, it, it just seems like, especially when people know something might be coming, that you build attention to, like, when, what is, because you'd act out everything, as you said. You'd be like, you know, you could, you'll do the, opening the door and you'll do the, this, this character might be really invited person in, but this person might be smaller. Is, are those decisions just based on what the audience is? Is that also part of the same thing when you say you're testing out trial and error, or is it more in the moment? Like, well, it will become repetitive as you've realized what is sort of working? Yeah. So I'll do it in the moment of explaining the story. It's not like I'm going to go, okay, chuck the clothes here. Just something that I did. And I go, okay, that worked. And uh, yeah, it's more of a trial and error. In, in telling the story, you kind of find those moments where physicality is needed. And then you really, really embellish on it. So yeah, I, uh, I I like it. For me, it's it keeps the act fresh because you know you you know it's different every night. You like to make it the same movement every night because then it becomes very consistent and you know the type of laughter you're gonna get. It's just the range of of, of movement is all determined in the practicing of yeah. the bit. In in this joke, so there's there's two types of act outs. There's the sort of one where like you are telling and but then you you'll sort of inhabit a character when you do something like you're being either the mother or the father in your mind are you, are you picturing a person are you like do you are you trying to really be the character like what is the line that you're walking where you're trying to both like act like you're a person in a scene while also being you telling the story yeah so i'm envisioning when i'm doing the doorbell bit and i'm serving the cake i'm envisioning my family at a table and i'm I'm actually envisioning me putting down a, a Entenmann's yeah. cake, and then walking away. You want you want a cup of coffee, <laughs> and 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 just motioning to whatever the coffee machine. So it's actually I have this visual in my head. I actually have the door, the whole doorbell bit. I'm taking myself back to the house I grew up in, and I actually. I'm envisioning sliding up yeah. to the door. I know what the door looks like. I know what the little peephole looks like. I, I noticed that the, the pantomiming, which I learned at Second City, to be very specific if you're going to open up a door to make sure, oh, wow. like, uh, or a window, yeah. to make sure, like, your hands are, are here. They're, they're not, you know, like, you want to make sure and then so people could see the door open or the window open and the, and the window close. Or the sliding door. Or, or, well, this one has the way you open the door is a big, I mean, it's a huge laugh because you open it so, one, you feel like you feel the weight of this door and it's like he's really throwing it open. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a, like, wel <laughs> welcome to the house. Yeah. I mean, if you just did it like this, you wouldn't get uh, the reaction. Like, oh, he just opened the door. But when you, when you throw your hand open, you're like, hey, it's a party. You know, it's like yeah. a party. Get the cake out. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's all kind of calculated um, prior, you know, to it really kind of being part of the act, and it's it's worked out at the comedy store mainly because uh, that's the the place I feel most comfortable doing new material is the comedy store. The way you open the door is a version of it. And um, or how you the kids jump out of the couch. It's hard to describe, but there is a certain sort of like way you'll do the sort of when you're doing a more discreet act out where you're not doing like a full persona. You'll do like it's like a like a burst. You're the sort of like. It's, do you have a sense of like? I think I remember like when preparing. You're like, oh, he really likes Michael Jackson. There's sort of like a very like jolt in which you'll do it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So it's a very um, pronounced movement. I, I liken it to Michael Jackson's kick where he just popped up and just gave a kick. And then it's like, whoa. But there's also moments where you go the opposite way and and you um, whisper to the audience. And I feel like whispering or mouthing something, you could almost feel the audience you know, come to you so I like to do it in a variety of different ways. It's very explosive, but then there's like smaller movements. It's like my father going, let's get out of here and just just moving your fingers, you know, like slightly, you know that he means business. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's conveying your emotions through... Uh, physicality yeah. which i find uh people are are reading the they're reading my body language has it changed much since the amount you decide to use it i feel like you know it has it evolved since this was 2012 versus 2011 you're doing this joke i mean that's a while ago and and you know comedians get better have you refined do you feel like how you use physicalness in your act it's funny, I went back and I did the doorbell bit last week. I haven't done the doorbell bit on stage in probably seven years. And I'm like, I wonder if I could re recreate what I did on the special now that's been seven years. So I watched it on YouTube and I looked at the moments. And then when I did it, I didn't feel like it had the impact. Number one, people have seen the bit. But number two, I didn't feel like I gave it justice. I felt like... There was something wrong, and it could be, it could be the slightest of things that could throw off a joke. You could stumble over one word, and and then the joke doesn't hit, or you could miss a movement, or you're like, why didn't that work? And you go, oh, I, I started with my right foot. I should have went with my left. I mean, there's just a lot of variables that go into it. I mean, you might not know as an audience member what's going on, but as a performer, you kind of done it so much, you know, it's like a dance routine and, and I'm dancing with the audience. So if, if I'm off, they're off. So that's how I kind of liken it. You've said in interviews, sometimes it's for you, it's less about a specific joke in a classic sense, as much as like the face you make or sort of how you are responding to it. What are your, I feel like you're ultimately saying is that the, the comedy is you. They are you and sort of they're living almost like through your brain to view the world, sort of, if that makes sense. What is it about you that you're trying to convey? What do you think about you is funny to these people? Uh, I think it's the point of view of how I uh, see the world. And, uh, you know, I, I see the world a lot of the times through uh, uh, just a disdain for human behavior, number one. And then I also see the world um, in a family sense of, you know, 
it's a lot of what I do. A lot of my act is a lot of differences. My wife comes from wealth. I come from middle class and now we come together. There's a lot of differences yeah. there. Also, I find what works is nostalgia. This is how it used to be then. This is how it is now. And people get a kick out of, uh, in the new special I, I do, like the fighting was different in the 80s than it is mm -hmm. today because of mixed martial arts. Back in the 80s, you got a black guy. Now you could possibly be in a wheelchair eating through a straw if you get in fight with the wrong guy. So I find that the nostalgia people people really relate to, and it covers a broad audience too. So that doorbell bit, an 80-year-old grandmother could relate to as, as well as an eight-year-old granddaughter and everybody in between. It's kind of multi-generational. You're hitting a lot of different people in one joke, which, you know, I did an interview today. It's funny with kids for kids day, and they're like eight, nine years old, and I said, Bono, like I, I go, Something about Bono, and they looked at me like, "What's a Bono?" Like, like uh, you, sometimes you just uh, your jokes might be flying over people's head yeah, yeah. just because of of the age gap, which you know it's nice nice to know. You just think, "Oh, everybody knows Bono," but apparently not. Well, I, I think that's as you're saying. There's when you're doing universal observations of like people have families, people like go to eat, or it allows you to reach those different demographics, and. That's right. If you say that band, these kids won't know that. And that's the problem with sort of people that are trying to be super current is in 10 years, that joke is going to be like, yeah, I don't know who that person is. But this doorbell bit, for the most part, still holds up because people still don't like doorbells. But still 20 years ago, they might have had a childhood. You know, did you think that's what your comedy was going to be, that you're going to be like doing like nostalgia? I can't imagine it when you're starting out, you're like, I'm going to talk about nostalgia. Joe, no, no. It, it's uh, again. It's one of these things you don't even know. You don't even know about comedy. You don't know anything about it when you get up on stage. You just think you have funny thoughts, and you're you think people want to hear them. So, uh, you know, when I first started out, I was super angry, super like not likable. I wasn't laughing at myself. I was like really, really pissed off. And you begin to know really quickly that this is not working. But it's a mask almost until you start feeling really, really comfortable on stage. And then you could start showing your true colors. So sometimes it takes a while. It takes eight, nine, ten years to get a point of view to figure out who you are on stage. And uh, that's why a lot of comedians typically hit when they're, you know, a little older. You don't really see a lot of comedians in their early 20s that... Yeah. That because they don't really have a lot to draw from. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. There's a lot of talented comedians. I mean, look at Eddie Murphy. He was 19 or 20 years old when he yeah. did uh, Raw, I think, or Delirious. What it, Delirious. So, yeah, I mean, there's talents like that, but those are few and far between. Was it something that you feel like the audience told you was what they wanted from you, or do you feel like it was a back and forth? It was a back and forth. I, I, I learned from the audience. I also learned from myself with... Uh, with, you know, the trial and error, doing different audiences, uh, not limiting myself to a specific comedy club, you know, doing uh, different shows, going to the Middle East to do shows, found out how a different culture relates to comedy, went to Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, uh, Egypt, and you start to begin to, no matter where you're, you're from, a lot of people have the same shared experiences, so... 
Yeah, it's it's doing everything. It's doing uh, African American rooms, which typically are are for a white comedian. You know, right away uh, the African American audience are like, "All right, make make me laugh," and they're they're very honest about how they feel about yeah. you. Uh, so it's a challenge, and I I love the challenge, and I, I do really really well. Just because I don't, I don't pander to the the audience. It's like this is my this is my jokes. Wherever you're from, you're gonna relate to them. Did the joke change much? Do you remember any major changes that happened in the process? Um, no, you know, some bits kind of write themselves, and uh, that one was really kind of easy because I followed pretty much uh, the conversation we had as a family about the doorbell. My favorite part is three and a half minutes in. You then go, but nowadays, and then like the audience forgets that the whole point of the bit was that you're doing yeah. a contrast. Yeah, no. was that something you just realized that there's that the surprise of like, oh yeah, I forgot that. What I think you say specifically, what do you say? Oh, now, now you're yeah. Now, now when your doorbell rings, it's it then snaps them back into the current. Yeah. So you know, they kind of get lost in the nostalgia of it all. And then all of a sudden, boom, they snap back in and like, oh, my God, now we know how we feel. Yeah. And now they're ready for me to explain the nuances of the doorbell and people scrambling and hiding in closets and whatnot. Although I might have to update the bit because now with this thing called Ring, you could actually see. Mm-hmm. Who's at the door? You could be in the Bahamas and go, look, the mailman's there. You know, like <laughs> there's no more guessing. Yeah, it's yeah. like, you know, who's who's at your door. You know who's in your house nowadays with all this technology. So I might have to like upgrade the bit. It's interesting because it, it was a, I feel like a really breakthrough joke for you. But it, it, it's because though you don't, you don't go like my mom was like this. My, mo- my dad was like that, which you would do a lot more as your comedy went on, it was like you're, it felt like you're like dipping your toe and doing a little bit more storytelling, a little bit more telling story about your family. Did it feel like that when you were doing it? Did it feel like it was a gateway to do that type of stuff? Not necessarily that joke. The joke I felt like I w- could really open up with my personal life and my family was when I started talking about like Italian weddings. Now you gotta plan the wedding. Now I come from an Italian family. Italians do it a lot different than most people when it comes to weddings, okay? Italians don't register at Bed Bath and Beyond. We don't bring a toaster to a wedding. Italians bring cash, okay? We, yeah, we put it in an envelope. Sometimes there's not even a card. There's just cash with a post-it note. And I was really, really kind of reluctant to put that on the special because I'm like, ah, you know what, if you haven't been to an Italian wedding, there's no reference point. Mm -hmm. But then a lot of people started to resonate with that. And then I started to tell myself, wow, let me, let me start talking about my family now. And because up to that point, it was like, went to Subway today. Anybody been to this thing? And it'd be like, all right, after that, where did I go? It's just been all like observational, you know? But then as soon as I started talking about, I am this way because I grew up this way. And then that kind of opened up the floodgates. But that that, that doorbell bit, you know, I, it was one of those things where it went viral. It, it got a lot of heat on, um, on Facebook. A lot of people shared it. And um, 
I didn't think at the time that it was going to be what it is now. We'll be back with more Sebastian Maniscalco after this word from our sponsor. From head writers of SNL Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider comes a new Comedy Central series, The Other Two, starring Drew Tarver, Helena York, Case Walker, and featuring Molly Shannon, Ken Marino, and Wanda Sykes. The show follows Carrie and Brooke Dubeck, two 20-somethings struggling to make it in New York. As the two work toward finding themselves, their lives are completely upended when their 13-year-old brother, Chase Dreams, becomes a viral singing sensation overnight. The other two premieres Thursday at 10.30, 9.30 Central, after the season premiere of Broad City on Comedy Central. And we're back. So I was thinking about the show as I was preparing, and uh, partly because you don't necessarily pick one side or the other, I was thinking that it sort of represents the like the fundamental dichotomy of your persona. In, and bear with me because this is maybe uh, all in my head, but there's both the sort of nostalgic, like this is how you're supposed to treat people. You're supposed to, you know, like you should have a cake ready for them. You should, and, but then there's the also what's wrong with people, half of you. Does does um, does that resonate to you? Do you feel like like ultimately this is sort of the yin yang of what you do on stage? No, it's not a conscious thing where I'm going okay and talk about uh, nostalgia and then talk about it's 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 whatever's making me feel what's working. There's no like a percentage I'm yeah, giving sure. to cer- certain parts of my act. Whatever is funny, I feel like. It's so hard to come up with material. Yeah, it's 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 like when you have a gem of 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 uh, of a bit, you you don't you have to you have to tell it. You're saying when you start out, you're you're a very angry comedian in a way, but though a lot of your comedy is hypothetically skewed negatively, do you feel like your comedy is ultimately a positive or negative thing, or like the tone of it? I would like to think it's a more of a disbelief. Like, uh, how could this be happening? And I feel like the audience is with me on, I feel like sometimes I'm a fish out of water Mm -hmm. and I'm looking around going, is it me? Mm -hmm. Or do other people feel this way? So it's made to be, it comes from a place of, of, judgment Mm -hmm. but it it's not in a way that it's malicious or or you know you know i'm making fun of me i'm making fun of my family i think everybody it's just the way i grew up you got ripped to shreds yeah and nobody was angry about it you know if you came out with a weird shirt four guys are gonna go what are you where are you going (laughs) And uh, no one, no one took it as. I don't, I don't know. It, it, it's just you know. That's the way you talk to each other. Yeah, and then I kind of just translated that to the stage. You know, it's just like, uh, and you, you know, you could look at it the other way, going, well, you know, maybe that's just the way people do things. Maybe they sit by people in the <laughs> airport, and the, yeah. the, 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 but it's more like I'm I'm kind of pointing out the absurdities of life and it's coming from a good place. Yeah, I mean, I think also ultimately, though there you might be negative to this person, you are, you the everyone in the audience is like, you're on their side. Yeah, it's like if 3,000 people are in the building, we're not the problem. Yeah. It's the people, as soon as you step outside, those are the people. Yeah. 
So we are currently in a Four Seasons right now. And you, uh, for your first few years when you're starting out, you worked at a, as a waiter at a Four Seasons. When you do a show, how do you try to provide good customer service? I like the people to come to the show and kind of be transported into my, to, into my world. So first and foremost, I have to be on my game. I have to deliver comedy for an hour and 20 minutes. Uh, that's what people are there for. That's what people uh, are paid to see. I like to give them some visual effect. Um, what I've done is I've taken uh, screens, LED screens, and put them within the proscenium of the stage so people could see the act outs and the, and the and expressions and all that. And uh, it's kind of done in a way where it's it's slick. Um, you know, just even the way I come out on stage, it's there's like a white backdrop and a and a and a, and a light, and I, I appear in the light. It's just like kind of making it more of a show than just going, um, "What's up, guys?" You know, I like uh, kind of the um, kind of the Michael Jackson of it all, just to kind theatrics. of yeah, theatrics. You know, on, on the show at the Madison Square Garden, you know, I'm, there's. There's cryo involved, and there's a little bit more of excitement in the air opposed to just walking out onto the stage and making people laugh. So that's the way I kind of provide uh, my way of hospitality because I feel like when I, when I was doing the clubs, I would stay you know until everybody left. I would take photos, I would sign DVDs, uh, talk to people, and you know it was something that I felt like, hey, if you're going to spend the night with me. I want to thank you for coming out. I want to thank you for paying for parking, the tickets, the two-drink minimum, all that stuff. And uh, now, I, obviously, I can't do it just because of the size of the audience. Take I'll be, be there for three weeks. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Uh, but, yeah, I feel like, you know, if you're coming to a show, you're kind of stepping into my house. And uh, my version of coffee and, and cake is, is the comedy. Have you liked having to figure out how to translate that do you like the like okay what are the screens do you like have you liked that process i think some comedians are like i'm just a guy who tells jokes i don't want to but have you liked the how do you elevate it yeah i think it's very important even the new special that i got out uh, netflix you know did the design of that kind of oval grid over me and the lights and the stage kind of having those white lines uh, lit up and uh me coming from the the, you know, rising up like that with like little smoke. Uh, yeah, I, uh, you know, we're <laughs> you do like it. <laughs> I do. I yeah. do enjoy the production side of of show business. You yeah, know, it's, it's show business, and you got to give these people a show. So, yeah, I'm I'm heavily involved. But my wife is the one that kind of spearheads all that. She is the kind of the creative brain behind all that uh, aesthetics. So um, speaking of your wife, so I was thinking your, your dad worked a craft his whole life. He was a hairstylist and your wife is a, um, an abstract painter. She does these big explosions of colors and these big canvases. When you think about what you do, do you feel like it's closer to what your dad did or closer to what your wife does? Mm, that's a good, good one. Um, mm, 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 mm. Well, I think, you know, my wife is creating something out of nothing, which I kind of am too. My father has, he's creating something, but he has something to kind of mold in front of him. Uh, painting, you got a blank canvas, uh, comedy, you have a blank piece of paper. 
Uh, I think they're all very similar in the fact that they're in the creative field, obviously. But I would have to, I would have to go to towards my wife when it comes to the creativity of it all. Like she'll do a painting, and and I always wonder, is it is it done? Like how do you know when it's yeah. done? You know, and it's a feeling. It's like the joke. Is it done? Could I add more to it? Or if I add more, are we going to kind of lose the excitement of the joke? Could I add to that doorbell bit another one or two lines and make it as good as it is if it currently stands? Who knows? But uh, yeah, I'd have to say my wife. So I grew up in uh, Long Island, which has uh, a lot of Italian-Americans there. So I first became familiar with you from almost everyone I went to high school with sharing Facebook videos of one bit or another. Obviously, you have, at this point, your, your, your fan base has grown well beyond that. But obviously, to, to a certain group of people, you're a very important comedian, and even above so. You represent them in a lot of ways. How does it feel to be embraced by these people so much? Yeah, it makes me feel great when they come up to me and say, hey, you know, you make Italian-Americans proud, you know, really love what you do and uh, wish you all the success. And they feel like they're kind of a part of the success because they've been there from when I first started doing Gotham Comedy Club, when I first started coming to New York City. They kind of been there every step of the way. And then we went to the Beacon, we went to the Radio City, and now we're going to the Madison Square Garden. They've been along the whole journey. So... To this, the specific Italian Americans, you know, I feel like, yeah, it's it's nice to be uh, kind of the the, the spokesman <laughs> yeah. for them, um, and uh, yeah, they've been very very supportive. So we've talked about Matt, you're playing Madison Square Garden in a, f- a few days. By the time this comes out, you will have already played it. What you know, your special also comes out, I believe, today. But what material will you be doing? Yeah, so it's all it's old and new. I get that question a lot. Is it the same? Is it the same thing we've seen? You know, listen, I'm always writing new material. Uh, I shot the special in May. It's now January. Yes, there's going to be new stuff in in the uh, in the act. But I'm not a type of comedian that like does the Netflix special and then you never see the material again. I'm always adding to the material sometimes, uh, you know, as long as I'm having fun saying it, uh, I think the audience is enjoying it just as much. Will they go, we saw that on the special? Yeah, some of the jokes you're going to see on the special. It's just the way it is. Uh, But some of the jokes are brand new and and hot off the press. And, you know, it's, it's like I run into this all the time. People go, yeah, I love the doorbell bit. You didn't do the doorbell bit. And then I'm like, well, I, I did it. And then some people go, if I do the doorbell bit, I've I seen that. What are you, why, why are you yeah. doing So you try and give them, you know, a good kind of marriage of old, new, and and, and the greatest hits. Do you think you'll do doorbell at Madison Square? I am doing doorbell. Definitely. Definitely doing it. Will I you did. work it out beforehand? Now I did. Oh, cool. I've done it. I've done the doorbell bit. I've done it. I think I might do... Uh, the bow and arrow bit, my buddy with the bow and arrow. He's got this thing in the house. I go, John, what the hell you got this in the, in the house for? He's like, you kidding me? It's for home invasion. Home invasion. Could you imagine the poor bastard that breaks into my buddy's house? As a burglar, you can't even prepare for something like that. 
I've interviewed a few comedians before after they played Madison Square Garden. And for most comedians, the conversation is around like, well, how do you make yourself big enough to fit a big stage? That's like, oh, everyone. It's like, you know, a lot of comedians are like, well, it's just me in a store and whatever. For you, that is obviously not the the question. You're always a fish bigger than the, maybe a small bowl and your bowl keeps on getting bigger and it makes sense. But still... It is a bigger stage. Have you thought about how you approach it differently? How do you think you'll, your performance might change now that it like will be fitting the space that it sort of makes sense for? So I've done, uh, I think, six or seven arenas prior to this building up to this moment. So um, those kind of shows, I don't, I'm not going to say they were practice shows, but it made me very familiar of how to work around stage and, and keep moving. And you'd be surprised how many people are in very, very close proximity to the stage, but they're looking at the screen. I mean, they got fifth, sixth row. I'm right there, and I'm looking right at them, and I'm looking at an Adam's apple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the the screen, for whatever the reason, I mean, we're, that's all we do is look at screens. So, yes, I have kind of created an act in the round that I kind of know where I'm going to be when I'm doing certain bits. Uh, you know, sometimes I have to look for different ways, but the way I'm doing it is kind of within the bit. So it's not like, Hey, Hey, it, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's kind of, it, it's kind of, it kind of works within the bit. So it's a challenge, but I feel like doing it in the round is very, uh, very intimate for me as a performer, especially having the, the screen above me, and it's almost like having a ceiling, uh, it, and it makes it for for more of an intimate performance for me. What do you want from it, sort of personally, artistically? Like, what do you want to feel when you hit the stage, and and what would you like to feel when you're done? Uh, when I first get on stage, I would like to feel the excitement that this is like Madison Square Garden, and people are really excited to be there, and I could feel that as soon as I walk on stage. Some audiences, you go out, and you're like, Do people want to be here. It's just the way I'm, I'm feeling, yeah. maybe. I, I don't know. But when I go out there, I want the same response as when I come on stage and as, as, as when I leave on stage. I want that excitement to, to build throughout the show. I want people, you know, I get like comments, I can't wait to come see you again. Because every show is one of these things where you're, it's like a commercial for your next show. So you're only as good as your last performance. I want people to come back and bring a bunch of different people that might not know who I am. So when I'm looking out of the garden, is for some really, really fantastic shows. I take my job very seriously. I, I uh, you know, I don't want to let anybody down. Uh, I want to make people, you know, enjoy the experience. And uh, I operate out of a place of fear rather than positivity. There are some comedians that play football stadiums, and I'm not saying you won't play football stadium, and I can imagine it. So, but for you know, it feels like a not a conclusion, but like you've reached some sort of summit. I guess sort of as you're right there on it, how do you feel just about that fact of it? That you're like, oh, I like ten, when you were doing this bit seven years ago, that that was not. You're like, oh, I'm going to be playing Madison Square Garden in seven years. No one would, no no sane person would justifiably have that five year plan. I don't know. I don't know where you go. If you're on the top of the mountain, you fall off. I don't know what happens. You play the Vatican. What do you do? Yeah, you I, <laughs> I don't know where, where I go from here. It's not like I'm looking to top this, you know, like in, next time I come to New York, if I play whatever, uh, a theater, that's, that's fine by me. I guess it's nice to be at a place where you're like, I'm now not looking to top 
what I'm doing. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I never, I never, I sh when I did Radio City, I go, wow, that's, you know, we did five Radio City music halls. That ain't too shabby. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I never plan on, you know, doing four Madison Square Gardens. And, and it's not, for me, it's really not the important, like the number amount of shows that I'm doing or whatnot. To me, it's more like, um, uh, just more about my act. Don't get me wrong. I'm flattered that yeah. 80,000 people <laughs> come yeah. see comedy this weekend. I mean, that's crazy. But, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a little bit overwhelming. In interviews, you've talked about how getting to comedy was partly an extension for being from a funny family. And so, so in many ways, it, as you made a career of it, you are sort of a, re a, a representation of being from a funny family. How do you feel like you've represented your family in that way as being you are like we the mascot because are funny here i am proof of it yeah it's like um you know my father thinks he's a bit of a comedian just because of his job and he feels like he's performing for one person every hour that they you know they sit in the chair so yeah no i feel like i'm representing my family uh it kind of exactly how they are there's very small there's my, me my mother my father and my, my sister and every time we get together it's uh it's a pretty good time so uh yeah i i'm the one that kind of i'm like the spokesman of comedy for the maniscalco family they're coming this weekend yeah my sister and uh yeah they all arrive on thursday and uh i got my friends from chicago coming out i got um got my cousin coming out so yeah it's, it's there's a lot of people my my nieces who my sister has three kids uh, my sister just called me she's like you know i think they should see the guard i think they should come down at least take some pictures because you know they're 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 whatever eight and, and five years old but i said yeah bring them down you know i was thinking of bringing my my daughter on stage at the end of the show and taking a photo with uh, my daughter and my my wife I've done that once in Toronto, and it was really kind of cute. I mean, to, to have like a family photo yeah. on stage. Why are you laughing? It's cute. <laughs> it is cute. Like, are you going to do that? No, I'm not uh, thinking it's a bad idea. It's a very cute idea. <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't know. Like, this is, I'm all about family and sharing moments like this with my family. Just to have a picture in Madison Square Garden with my wife and my kid yeah. and my, my uh, newborn baby to be, uh, would be, would be nice. <laughs> It's always so abrupt. Uh, so, so that sound means it's time for our final segment. It's called a laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's a laughing round. Um, I've heard in an interview you say you don't like to eat before a show. So what do you like to eat after a show? You know, I was eating for a while red meat and, um, you know, potatoes and vegetables, but uh, it got to my waistline really, really fast. So now I, I cut off eating around five o'clock and I don't eat the rest of the night. Wow. I have, I, you know what I have during, during, uh, I have fruit, I have uh, strawberries, raspberries, and blueberries, I'm like a squirrel. If you could steal another comedian's joke in a way in which it's no one would know. It's always it's not, it's not even like it was ever their joke. It's essentially a, a joke another comedian has, and it was it's been your joke. It's always been your joke. It's another dimension where a joke that comedian that you like is now your joke. Does that make sense? Brian Regan does a joke about um, spelling, uh, not spelling, the 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 science fair. 
and it's about him like uh, i don't know the joke verbatim but the, the the concept of like he 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 brought like dirt or whatever to to the science fair and 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 he does this whole thing on the science fair and just the whole the whole science fair thing really relates to me because in my science fair i did uh, popcorn what pops better microwave popcorn or an air pop and this was a last minute science project i didn't have the type of family that helped me with the project so i went in with like what do we do and they're like just do something with food and i'm showing up to school with a air popper and a lot of people thought that my science project was part of like the catering for the science sure. fair that'd come by and get a bag. I go, wait a minute, that's my test uh, sample. So preparing for this, I, f I found a couple articles about your house and the design of your house. And I, it's incredible. Oh, I'm like, thank uh, you. it is really, really interesting. And this is an audio medium, but I suggest anyone looks up pictures of your house. Do you have a, f so to describe it's a, in what is called a Memphis style, there's lots of like big colors. Do you have a favorite sort of piece of furniture of the sort of more exaggerated. Our thing. dining room table, I really like. It's striped and the um, the like the, the bottom of it is a uh, a sphere and a triangle. Um, yeah, it's it, the house is primarily a uh, the concept is the, from the designer Kelly Wurstler along with my wife who is super creative. I mean, I, I mean, I didn't really have a lot of say. But you allowed them to have. But I was like, all right, if you want to do that, then that that's great. And then when I moved in, I got this is fabulous. There's no way I could have come up with the ideas. That, it's amazing. Uh, yeah, I really do suggest people look up this house. Um, have you ever injured yourself on stage? You're moving around so much. I did uh, in Detroit two years ago. I. Um, snap my calf i was doing i was leaving the stage actually saying goodbye and the way i landed on my calf i collapsed off the stage not off the stage but like on the side of the stage nobody knew and i got rushed to the hospital and i had to spend uh some time on some some crutches but uh, yeah that was the only time i ripped my pants a few times on stage in my crotch area but other than that i'm all right do you have a, a joke or a thing that you tried on stage that you thought was so funny, you always think it's funny, you kept on trying it, but the audience has never responded, that you, you'll you go to your grave being like, that's funny, but at this point... I'm doing a thing on funerals right now, and it's not working. I'm doing a thing, and I don't know, I have to go... It, it used to work, but the way I'm doing it now is not working, where I go up to a casket at a wake, and I kneel down, and I say, I got a thing I do, I... Um, I don't pray. I, I don't do anything. I just ask myself, how long do I got to sit up here and wait till I go back to my seat? And for whatever the reason, death right now in my act, there's some, there's some death uh, topics I'm covering, ain't going well. <laughs> People don't want to think of a wake while they're at a comedy show. Um, that's it. That's it. Thank you so no much. No sound effect. No sound effect. On the way out. No sound effect. We can play it again if you miss it. Can you play it again? No, it's over. <laughs> right. That's it for this week's episode. You can stream Sebastian Maniscalco's Stay Hungry on Netflix. You can watch his other specials on Amazon, iTunes, or wherever you stream. Follow Sebastian on Twitter, at Sebastian Comedy. Good One is produced by Mike Comite. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Spread a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. And hey... 
If you know anyone who might like the podcast, maybe tell them. What the heck? You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back next week with a new episode and a new joke. Have a good one. That was a HeadGum Podcast.